One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Cowboys at Giants. Kickoff Sunday, December 19th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 44 and a half. Visit oneweekseason.com for COVID updates throughout the weekend. Game Overview by Hilo. The Cowboys stand as one of the league's least impacted teams this week as notable injuries and COVID news are restricted to Tony Pollard, foot, Cedric Wilson, COVID, and Tyron Smith, ankle. The Giants are not as lucky as Kadarius Tony, COVID, IR, John Ross, COVID, Adoree Jackson, COVID, Xavier McKinney, COVID, O'Shane Jimenez, COVID, and Saquon Barkley, ankle management, all have statuses in doubt this weekend. Daniel Jones has also been limited in every practice since straining his neck three weeks ago and is not yet known whether he will play or not. After getting through half of my write-ups for this week, I feel it necessary to highlight the fact that there are an immense number of injuries and COVID issues around the league this week, so make sure to study the base information which will give you the best chances of reacting in the most optimal way once it comes to crunch time later this week. How Dallas will try to win. The Cowboys currently sit in the middle of the pack in overall pass rates this season, but the underlying metrics tell a more cohesive tale. Dallas holds a top 10 pass rate when trailing, balanced rush pass rate when leading, 50%, and top 10 situation neutral pass rate this season. This data shows that the team has remained relatively pass biased this season, altering their offensive game plan in a more reactionary manner as opposed to a game planning manner. Basically, rush pass rates are more heavily influenced by game flow than matchup. This is important information to keep in mind as we break down this team for the remainder of the season. To highlight this fact, Dak Prescott has 39 or more pass attempts in six of his previous eight starts, with the two outliers checking in at 31 and 32 attempts in large victories, 43-3 against Atlanta in Week 10, and 44-20 against these Giants in Week 5. Dallas has also continued its up-tempo ways, ranking second in overall pace of play and third in situation-neutral pace of play this year. The ground game appears set for a 1A-1B situation, regardless of the game-day status of Tony Pollard, after Corey Clement played a solid 36% of the offensive snaps in his absence in Week 14, which is right in line with Pollard's typical snap rate. It is very clear that the Cowboys are attempting to allow Ezekiel Elliott to heal up and stay fresh for the playoff push, managing his snaps and workload in the process on a weekly basis. If there were any doubt, it was removed with Clement's snap rate last week. The matchup on the ground yields an absolutely elite 4.79 net adjusted line yards metric and is one of the greater mismatches we'll see all season. The Giants have allowed 26.4 fantasy points per game to the position, all while only seeding 10 total touchdowns to opposing backfields. The Giants actually rank near the top of the league in red zone touchdown rate allowed this season. Expect Zeke to handle his standard for 2021 16-18 running back opportunity workload with either Pollard or Clement filling in for the rest of the groundwork. Of note, the game script is highly unlikely to increase Zeke's workload, and we should instead expect either Pollard or Clement to take on additional backfield work should the Cowboys go up big here. With all of Amari Cooper, CeeDee Lamb, and Michael Gallup now healthy, and Blake Jarwin on IR, we've seen increased 11 personnel rates from the Cowboys, with Amari and Gallup playing primarily on the perimeter and Lamb playing primarily from the slot. This has been a big boost to CeeDee's team target market share, and he has received a look on 29.1% of Dak's passes over the past two weeks. Even more impressive is the fact that he saw 10 targets last week on a modest 67% snap rate, which I expect to grow here. Expect a floor of 32-ish pass attempts from Dak, with a ceiling far exceeding 40 pass attempts, depending primarily on game flow. The Giants have allowed the fifth most fantasy points per game to opposing wide receivers, while holding opposing tight ends to league average marks. Keep an eye on Adoree Jackson's status for this weekend, as he is currently on the league's COVID list. His absence would be a fairly significant boost to the perimeter wide receivers here, functioning as the Giants' top-rated member of the secondary. The perimeter duo of Jackson and James Bradbury has allowed less than 50% of the passes thrown their way to be completed this season. While on the subject of James Bradbury, he has played an ultra-aggressive style this season, allowing seven touchdowns in his primary coverage, but also responsible for three picks. How New York will try to win. The Giants rank ninth in the league in situation-neutral pass rate and ninth in overall pass rate primarily due to the relative inability to run the ball behind the league's 30th-ranked run-blocking offensive line. Quarterback Daniel Jones' status is also not yet known for this weekend, as his participation has been limited in every practice since suffering his neck strain, as well as missing the last two contests. In his stead, Mike Glennon has pass attempts of 36 and 44, and I'd expect another pass-heavy approach against the Cowboys, 
primarily due to necessity and likeliest game flow. It hasn't been all roses for the Giants when forced to pass this season, who check into Week 15 with a 25th-ranked yards per completion value, 20th-ranked pass yards per game value, and have scored only 17.8 points per game, 27th. Saquon Barkley's game-day reps and level of practice participation continue to be monitored and managed due to his ankle, and he saw his lowest snap rate since returning in Week 11 last week, playing only 55% of the offensive snaps in a lopsided defeat against the Chargers. Expect a rather wide range of potential snaps for Barkley this week, but we can be fairly certain he won't see more than 18-20 to 20 running back opportunities as the team continues to manage his load. Behind Barkley, expect Devontae Booker to fill the change of pace role with the likeliest range of opportunities of 10-12. to 12. The matchup on the ground yields a paltry 4.02 net adjusted line yards metric against an opponent allowing just 20.5 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields. With John Ross and Kadarius Toney on the COVID list, expect Kenny Galladay, Sterling Shepard, and Darius Slayton to start at wide receiver and play the majority of the snaps here. Colin Johnson and Farrell Cooper are likeliest to fill in as depth pieces for light packages, while Evan Ingram and Kyle Rudolph should continue operating in an 80-40 role as far as expected snap rates go. Daniel Jones currently holds the 27th ranked intended at yards per pass attempt, while Mike Glennon is unranked, as he does not qualify, but holds a low 7.4 intended air yards per pass attempt value. Expect heavy pass volume built around the short to intermediate areas of the field against the Dallas defense allowing the third highest yards per completion in the league, which is somewhat misleading based on the underlying metrics. The Cowboys have forced a league average defensive ADOT 7.9, but have surrendered the most yards after the catch in the league. So while the Giants are ill-equipped to take advantage of the hyper-aggression exhibited by the Dallas defense, we should expect the relative strength of the Giants' pass offense to line up well with the deficiencies of the Cowboys' defense. The sad part is all three of the Giants' primary wide receivers rank in the bottom 20% in average yards after the catch amongst qualified receivers. A whole bunch of meh here. Likeliest game flow. The Cowboys are likely to control the tempo, flow, and environment of this one, likely forcing the Giants into increased aerial aggression as the game moves on. Since we know the Cowboys are likely to start the game with a pass-heavy approach, and since we know the Giants are likely to follow suit as the game evolves, consider this game environment ripe for additional plays run from scrimmage. In the same vein, we can't expect Zeke to see an increased workload based on what the Cowboys have shown us over the previous month of play, typically capped in the 18-20 to opportunity range, regardless of game flow. As such, expect solid volume from each pass offense here. Titans at Steelers. Kickoff Sunday, December 19th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 41.5. Game Overview by Pappy. There isn't a ton to love for DFS in this game. The Titans' backfield is a timeshare. Deontay Johnson is finally priced appropriately. Najee Harris leads the league in touches, but will cost a significant premium. How Tennessee will try to win. The 9-4 Titans come into this game in firm control of their division. They hold a two-game lead with four to play, and a victory would make them the division winner in all but a total collapse scenario. The Titans are also in a three-way tie for the number one seed, giving them a huge incentive to win out. There might not be a team in the league that would benefit more from getting a week off, as the Titans are currently projected to get Derrick Henry back around Week 18. Earning a first-round playoff pass would all but ensure King Henry is at full speed for the Titans' drive to the Super Bowl. The Titans draw a Steelers defense that is falling apart at the seams, ranking an uncharacteristically bad 30th in DVOA against the run, and also a poor 22nd in DVOA against the pass. The Titans play slow in all situations and still want to run the ball even without Henry in the lineup. The Steelers were pasted by Dalvin Cook for 205 yards and by Joe Mixon for 165 yards in two of their past three games. There is no reason for the Titans to deviate from their preferred method of attack against a defense that hasn't been able to stop anyone on the ground. Expect a slow-paced, balanced attack that leans ground heavy. How Pittsburgh will try to win. The 6-6-1 Steelers are in the basement of their division, but are only half a game behind a pack of 7-6 AFC teams that are all vying for the last two wildcard spots. Ben Roethlisberger has publicly declared this is his last season, and the Pittsburgh faithful would love to send him off with a playoff run. Unfortunately, the Steelers are coming off a five-game stretch where they tied the lowly Lions and have only beaten the Ravens in an emotionally charged home game they won by one point. Their defense has collapsed in their other three recent games, giving up 41, 41, and 36 points against the Chargers, Bengals, and Vikings. The Steelers run an up-tempo, 11th situation neutral pace, short passing attack designed to hide the fact that Big Ben can't throw the ball down the field like he could in his younger days. The Titans are middling against the pass, 14th in DVOA, and the run, 18th in DVOA, which shouldn't tilt the Steelers away from their preferred method of attack. 
expect Pittsburgh to come out throwing the ball short while continuing to feed Najee Harris touches on the ground and through the air. Likeliest game flow. This game has a low total of 41.5 because it's difficult to project either team for a lot of points. The Steelers' offense has looked one-dimensional all year as they try to operate behind one of the worst O-lines in football. The Titans' defense has improved as the season has worn on, and they are likely to slow Pittsburgh down. The Titans' offense hasn't been the same since losing Derrick Henry and is also down stud-wide receiver A.J. Brown. The Steelers' defense has been bad lately, but they are playing at home and their season is on the line. Their defense still has talent, and it's easy to see them getting up for this game against the wounded Titans. The most likely scenario is a grinded-out affair that stays close throughout and the winning team getting there in the fourth quarter. Texans at Jaguars. Kickoff Sunday, December 19th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 39 and a half. Game Overview by Pappy. The Texans are in see-what-we-have mode. Brandon Cooks is underpriced for his role and matchup. James Robinson has more upside than the field will realize. Both defenses are attractively priced for a game with a total under 40 featuring two bad offenses. How Houston will try to win. The 2-11 Texans limp into this game having regularly been blown out all season. Their playoff hopes vanished long ago and they are playing for evaluations the rest of the season. The expectations weren't high, but the best fans can do now is root for the number one pick. The Texans play slow, 21st in situation neutral pace, but speed up in the second half, 4th in pace, because they're always losing. David Culley thinks he's found something in David Mills and let him throw it 49 times after surprisingly naming him the starter over Tyrod Taylor. Culley might as well find out what he has with Mills since the season is lost and Tyrod isn't the long-term answer. This week, the Texans draw a team struggling just as much. The Jaguars' defense has been beatable through the air, 31st in DVOA, and middling against the run, 13th in DVOA. The Texans look like they want to see what Mills can do down the stretch, and while it's not reasonable to predict another 49 pass attempts, there's good reason to think Mills will once again eclipse 40 in a game where the matchup should tilt the Texans towards the air. Expect the Texans to play balanced, leaning pass-heavy, with a willingness to go extremely pass-heavy if they fall behind. How Jacksonville will try to win The 2-11 Jaguars enter this game also competing for the top pick, as they try to make it two number one picks in a row. Are the Jaguars still moving to London and becoming the Redcoats? Is that still on? How they'll try to win? That's a harder question. The talentless Jags have scored 7, 9, 17, 10, 14, 7, and 0 points in their last 7 games and don't seem to have any identity, looking like a different offense almost every week. They seem to favor playing slow, 20th in situation neutral pace, but speed way up in the second half, 3rd in pace, because they're always chasing points. This week, they get a Texans defense that has been run over, 28th in DVOA, but has held up well against the pass, 8th in DVOA, presenting a run-funnel defense. The Jags have been willing to throw or run with high volume, seemingly out of nowhere, but this matchup should tilt them towards the ground. Expect the Jags to come out with a balanced offense that leans run and to stick with a conservative approach if the game remains close. Likeliest Game Flow This game has one of the lowest totals you'll see at 39 and pits two of the worst teams in the league against each other. This game features teams with negative point differentials over 150. Both defenses are weak, and both offenses are equally weak, creating a setup of weakness on weakness for both sides of the ball. Bad offenses are bad offenses for a reason, and playing a bad defense doesn't make them good. The most likely game flow has both teams struggling to move the ball, and each finishing around 20 points, with the winner being determined by who makes less mistakes. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Cardinals at Lions. Kickoff Sunday, December 19th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 47 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo. Linebacker Alex Anzalone, tight end TJ Hawkinson, and running back DeAndre Swift started the week with a DNP after missing last week's contest. Additional notable injuries include guard Jonah Jackson, back, and center Evan Brown, COVID, outside linebacker Julian Okara, ankle, and four members of the secondary that are all on the COVID list. The Cardinals are still waiting on Chase Edmonds to return from his ankle injury, James Conner did not participate in practice on Wednesday with an ankle injury, and DeAndre Hopkins will reportedly miss the remainder of the regular season with a leg injury. The Lions have allowed almost 30 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields and also struggle with deep passing, deepest 8-out allowed and second-highest average yards per completion allowed. 
how Arizona will try to win. The Cardinals have upped their situation-neutral pass rates over the previous five weeks of play, past the midpoint of the season, checking in with an 11th-ranked 60% pass rate over that time. They are still playing with an elevated situation-neutral pace of play and also run one of the league's fastest offenses in the first half of games, 5th-ranked 26.63 seconds per play in the first half. But we have to consider what has happened over the last month in order to get a clear picture of what to expect here. First off, Chase Edmonds suffered an ankle injury on his first touch in the Cardinals' Week 9 game. Next, both Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins sat out three weeks in a row with various injuries, returning after the Week 12 bye. And A.J. Green also missed a few weeks as well. Lastly, tight end Zach Ertz began integrating into this offense further, upping his weekly snap rates to around the 80% mark. When we pair those findings with the same general offensive philosophy shown from Cliff Kingsbury, a horizontally spread offense built around the power run game and layered receiver route trees designed to attack multiple areas of the field, we're left with an offense that has looked very similar to what we have seen over the previous two seasons, but that has now shown an increased propensity to tailor the offensive game plan to the opponent. The most glaring reasons for these findings are due to a defense that has done a great job at limiting opponents, third in points allowed per drive, fourth in turnovers generated per drive, fifth in yards allowed per drive, and ninth in overall drive success rate allowed. And the addition of James Conner, Zach Ertz, and rookie wide receiver Rondell Moore, allowing this team to be more dynamic and layered. Questions abound with the run game this week, as Chase Edmonds still has two weeks before his 21-day practice window expires, and James Conner emerged from their Week 14 game with an ankle injury that apparently required an MRI. Keep an eye on the respective statuses of these two this week, as the matchup could not be better on the ground. The matchup yields a slightly below average 4.26 net adjusted line yards metric against a Lions defense allowing 29.7 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields, including 22 total touchdowns. And, since we know the Cardinals have been more apt to lean on the run game in games they control this season, and since Kyler Murray has not been stealing rushing scores at the same rate this season, and since Nuke will miss this contest, we start to see a viable path to one of the more bankable fantasy outlets this week should one of these backs miss in one play. There's obviously more reason for skepticism should they both play, so the respective health of Edmonds and Connor could have a large impact on this slate. The last time either DeAndre Hopkins or A.J. Green missed a contest, the two primary perimeter wide receivers in this offense, Antoine Wesley almost directly stepped into their snaps, a three-week stretch of 76-77% to snap rates. Expect the same this week, with Nuke now expected to miss the remainder of the regular season. That leaves Wesley and Green on the perimeter, Christian Kirk primarily in the slot, and Rondale Moore in his short area, gadget-style role. Zach Ertz has hovered around an 80% snap rate for five consecutive weeks and is typically used in a short to intermediate role with viable yards after the catch upside. Overall, don't expect the pass game design to change much in the absence of Nuke, instead keeping a more spread nature in both production and spacing. The final piece of note here is how poor the Lions have been this season at defending the deeper areas of the field, seeding the deepest average depth of target and second most yards per completion. On top of that, four members of the secondary, including three regular starters, popped on the COVID list this week. This primarily benefits Christian Kirk as the only player to consistently be schemed deep area work, while A.J. Green should be considered a secondary beneficiary. How Detroit will try to win. Without sounding like a broken record with these Lions, we know how this team would like to try to win games. Power run game and deep passing built off of it. And we know how this team has been forced to try to win games. A largely ineffective power run game with short to intermediate passing built off of it, due in large part to the shortcomings of their starting quarterback. We also know that the Lions will start games with a slow pace of play and hefty rush rates, but are forced into second-half aerial aggression through an increased pace of play and increased pass rates more often than not. While this is good news from a target teams against the Lions perspective, it should be noted that we can't always take that line of thinking. More on this below. Furthermore, a massive chunk of how Detroit will try to win here depends on the game day statuses of DeAndre Swift, Jamal Williams, and TJ Hawkinson, who all failed to practice on Wednesday. Injuries to Swift and Hawkinson and COVID list for Williams. The normal backfield split between lead back DeAndre Swift and backup Jamal Williams was thrown out the window last week when Swift missed his second consecutive game and Williams hit the COVID list late in the week. In their absence, Godwin Iguabuke and Craig Reynolds split the backfield work almost down the middle. The talk of last week was which Detroit running back could see increased usage, and from what I saw on the field, their answer was Jamar Jefferson. Craig Reynolds came in and saw the first running back opportunity in the game and threw everything else out the window. We'll need to keep an eye on this backfield this week for a few different reasons, which we'll cover below. 
The matchup on the ground yields a moderate 4.325 net adjusted line yards metric against a Cardinals defense allowing just 22.2 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields on the backs of only five total touchdowns allowed to the position, second fewest in the league behind only the Patriots. Similar to the backfield, a lot of this passing game has changed via the status of TJ Hawkinson. Rookie slotman Amon Ross St. Brown has grown into the primary option in Hawkinson's absence, seeing 12 targets in consecutive weeks. Josh Reynolds and Khalif Raymond man the perimeter in moderate ADOT roles, while Brock Wright and Shane Zilstra split the snaps at tight end. The hyper-aggressive and back-to-front Cardinals defense has really put a clamp on opposing passing attacks this season, particularly against the lower-efficiency teams, meaning all members of this offense are likely going to have to rely on volume for fantasy purposes. Likeliest Game Flow It is highly likely the Cardinals are able to control this game from start to finish, primarily through their defense and emphasis on the run game. This should lead to the Lions increasing their pace of play and pass play rate in the second half, as we've grown accustomed to, but is less likely to influence the overall game environment as much as we've seen against the other opponents this season. The Cardinals decrease their second half pace of play and pass rates in games they control at comparable rates to the increase from the Lions, meaning neutral to negative impact on the game environment and total offensive plays run from scrimmage. That said, expect the Cardinals to force ample short field opportunities through their defense which should provide additional opportunities for points to be put up on the scoreboard. The clearest route for touchdowns to be scored for the Cardinals is on the ground, which could be influenced by available personnel. Expect the Lions to return aggression primarily through the short area pass game, effectively being forced to march the field against the defense that has been largely effective in getting off the field. Washington football team at the Eagles. Kickoff Sunday, December 19th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 43 and a half. Visit OneWeekSeason.com for COVID updates throughout the weekend. Game Overview by Hilo. Washington currently has 14 players on the COVID list, most notably wide receiver Cam Sims, five members of the defensive line, including three starters, and Kendall Fuller, who is without a doubt the highest-graded member of the secondary this season. Oh, and Terry McLaurin, J.D. McKissick, and Curtis Samuel didn't practice on Wednesday with various ailments. Philadelphia holds the highest overall rush rate in the league now at 51%, and they are highly likely to rely on the run game for as long as they are allowed. Those are truly the most significant overview points from this game, as they should drive the overall game environment here. How Washington will try to win There honestly is no telling how Washington will try to win this game, considering their multitude of injuries and COVID issues. Three wide receivers, including Terry McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, and Cam Sims, missed practice on Wednesday due to either injury or COVID issues. In the backfield, J.D. McKissick has yet to return from his scary-looking head injury. On defense, five members of their line are currently on the COVID list, including three starters. Kendall Fuller, the highest-graded member of their secondary, is also on the COVID list. Woof city. We have to assume Washington will begin this game in their normal manner, heavy power run game on early downs and short to intermediate passing on later downs, likely being forced into a much more aggressive offensive game plan as the game moves on. The problem is there are so many moving pieces throughout the offense, and the matchup through the air is a difficult one. The ground game also has uncertainty, with J.D. McKissick yet to return to full practices following his head injury suffered three weeks ago. Antonio Gibson has played 68% or more of the offensive snaps in each of the three games affected by McKissick's injury, meaning we're likely to see a heavy workload once more should McKissick miss. Consider Gibson a wide range of outcomes and volume play should McKissick miss due to the sporadic pass game usage and difficult matchup. Should McKissick return, expect a more even backfield split between the two, with McKissick's pass game role representing the likeliest path of least resistance, but he'll need a lot to go right in order to return a GPP-worthy score. The pure rushing matchup yields an average 4.33 net adjusted line yards metric against an Eagles defense allowing 25.4 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields. Final note, A good chunk of the fantasy and real-world production from backfields against the Eagles has come through the air, as they have faced the fifth most targets to the position this year. Projecting the offense doesn't get any easier when talking about Washington's pass game, as Terry McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, and Cam Sims all missed practice on Wednesday. McLaurin suffered a concussion in Week 14, Curtis Samuel has been battling his hamstring injury for the majority of the season, Cam Sims is currently on the COVID list, and Logan Thomas is done for the season, leaving DeAndre Carter, Adam Humphreys, Diami Brown, Ricky Seals-Jones, and John Bates as the remaining healthy pass catchers. What a mess.
About the only things we know with any degree of certainty are that Humphrey should man the slot with a 50-60% to 60% snap rate, the tight ends are likely to share duties, and the matchup tilts expected pass game production to the short to intermediate middle of the field. That's it. Keep an eye on the three injured wide receivers in addition to J.D. McKissick as the week progresses. How Philadelphia will try to win. The Eagles have transformed their offense into the most run-heavy unit in the league, with an overall rush rate of 51% on the season, and that's after starting this season extremely pass-heavy. Since the team shifted to its new identity back in Week 6, they hold a massive 59% rush rate, which ranks first in the league by a wide margin. The next closest team is the Patriots at 56%, all by the Colts at 50%, and we know the Patriots played a game in a Nor'easter and threw the ball only three times. Their overall rush rate through the first five weeks was 37%. That is quite the shift in offensive philosophy. From what we've seen from this team since week six, we can assume with a high degree of confidence that they will start games with a run-heavy approach and continue to do so until forced otherwise. Last week, running back Miles Sanders saw more than 20 opportunities for the first time since week one, taking 24 carries for 120 yards and adding three catches for 22 yards. He did so on 58% of the offensive snaps. For comparison's sake, his range of snap rates over the first six weeks of the season was 60 to 83%. The difference is those snaps are actually translating to running back opportunities now. That's about the end of the good news. The bad news is Kenneth Gainwell still saw 38% of the offensive snaps, and Jordan Howard is due back from injury this week. Howard saw a minimum of 10 rush attempts across his four healthy games for the Eagles prior to injury, adding a bit of uncertainty surrounding how he will be used should he return. The matchup yields an above-average 4.37 net adjusted line yards metric, but we must also consider the fact that five members of Washington's defensive line are currently on the COVID list. Again, a lot of moving pieces here. Jalen Hurts is tentatively expected to return from a one-game absence due to his high ankle sprain. Since week six, Hurts has only two games over 30 pass attempts, 31 and 34, and both of those games came in defeat. Considering how well this defense has played over the second half of the season, the multitude of injuries and COVID issues up and down Washington's roster, and the likeliest game flow, we shouldn't see Hurts surpass 30 pass attempts here. He's averaged just 24.1 pass attempts since week six. That leaves all Philadelphia pass catchers in the expected low volume roles, meaning all should be regarded as bet on efficiency pieces this week. Dallas Goddard now stands as the only pass catcher to see near every down snap rates every week, but he has topped out at only eight targets this season, typically residing in the five to eight target range. Devonta Smith, Quez Watkins, and Jalen Rager operate as the starting wide receivers, but again, volume has been an issue of late. Of note, Quez was placed on the COVID list on Monday, possibly opening up snaps for perennial underachiever J.J. Arcega-Whiteside to see an increased run. Likeliest Game Flow Knowing that the Eagles are highly likely to continue running the football for as long as they are allowed to do so, and paired with the multitude of injuries and COVID issues up and down Washington's team, it leaves us with the likeliest game flow where Philadelphia is able to control this game through the trenches on both sides of the ball. This should allow the Eagles to continue their high rush rates we have seen over the second half of the season and mutes the overall fantasy interest we should have from this game overall, considering Philadelphia's expected rushing production is spread between no less than four to five players, Jalen Hurts, Miles Sanders, Boston Scott, Kenneth Gainwell, and the likely to return Jordan Howard. The Jets at the Dolphins kick off Sunday, December 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 41.0. COVID updates coming throughout the weekend on OneWeekSeason.com. Game Overview by Pappy. The Jets almost always allow at least one significant stat line. Ty Johnson is underpriced for his role if Tevin Coleman sits. Miles Gaskin is underpriced for his role if Malcolm Brown and Philip Lindsay sit. Devontae Parker brings a nice floor-slash-ceiling combination at his price. How New York will try to win The 3-10 Jets come into this game worse than their record. How can you be worse than 3-10? Robert Saleh's squad has a sorry negative 171-point differential on the year. The only other three teams in their realm of ineptitude are the Lions, negative 141, the Texans, negative 179, and the Jaguars, negative 160. Those teams all have worse records than the Jets. The Jets are fortunate to be at 3-10. Robert Saleh wants to win with mistake-free football on offense and strong defense. The problem with that formula is his team has a turnover-prone rookie QB, and they're appalling on defense. 
This week, they get a Dolphins defense that is middling against both the pass and the run, but is defined by their style of play rather than their middle-of-the-pack DVOA rankings. The Dolphins play man coverage and blitz at one of the highest rates in the league, and Zach Wilson isn't the type of QB that is likely to do well against pressure. When these teams met in Week 11, Joe Flacco was under center. Flacco is much better equipped to deal with this type of defense than Wilson. The Jets' coaching staff seemed willing to let Wilson throw the past two weeks, making it reasonable to expect them to try and let their young QB win this game. How Miami will try to win The 6-7 Dolphins enter this game off a late-season bye that every team covets late in the year. After starting 1-7, the Fish have ripped off five straight wins and are only one game behind a pack of AFC teams who are all battling for the final wildcard spot. No team has ever started 1-7 and made the playoffs. Only three teams have started 1-5 before making the playoffs. Even with an extra game and expanded playoff field, it would be quite the feat for the Dolphins to reach the postseason. The Dolphins' playoff quest is aided this week by their opponent, who sports one of the worst defenses in recent memory, managing to rank 32nd in DVOA against the pass and 31st in DVOA against the run. The Jets allow offenses to choose how they want to move the ball, so there is no reason for the Dolphins to deviate from their normal approach of a balanced pass-leaning offense that plays at a moderate speed, 15th situation neutral pace. The Dolphins will look to roll over the sorry defense of the Jets while creating turnovers and eventually running out the clock up by multiple scores in the fourth quarter. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a low total of 42 because the Jets are projected for their usual 17 points. The Jets have produced 17, 17, 21, 18, and 9 points in their past five games, so their team total feels about right. The Dolphins should be able to have their way on offense, which will eventually force the Jets to cut bait and let Wilson throw around 40 times. That will lead to turnovers, and the Dolphins should be able to win this game going away in the fourth quarter. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Panthers at the Bills kick off Sunday, December 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 44.5. COVID updates coming throughout the weekend on OneWeekSeason.com. Game Overview by Hilo. The Panthers have seemingly avoided the COVID bug, with the only notable questionable player being cornerback A.J. Boye. The Bills have also miraculously avoided the COVID bug for the most part, with only backup middle linebacker Tyrell Dodson currently on the list. Emmanuel Sanders is doubtful with a knee injury. This Bills team is not the same team we attacked relentlessly last season, and they are typically more than content to simply wax games with their rushing attack instead of leaving too much to Josh Allen, which is an important aspect to consider against a Panthers team that the Bills' defense should largely shut down. Cam Newton simply does not carry the floor that the field still thinks he has on a weekly basis. How Carolina will try to win Carolina's overall pass rate with Cam Newton as the starter sits at 61%, only a three-game sample, which is much higher than you'd think when looking at the underlying metrics. As in, Cam Newton has pass attempts of only 27, 23, and 21 in his three games as the starter, albeit backup P.J. Walker came in for two of those games to add 10 and 12 pass attempts of his own. To that point, I was having a discussion with the other providers this past week about how Cam Newton doesn't carry the weekly floor that the field seems to think he does, a possible area to leverage for the remainder of the season. Anywho, Cam is not the same passer he once was, deriving so much of his value from this rushing potential, rushing score in each of his four appearances for the Panthers this season. And these weren't world-beater defenses that shut Cam down. He looked competent against Washington and proceeded to look less than capable, that's putting it lightly, against Miami and Atlanta, two defenses that have been suspect in the secondary all season. The ground game is now a veritable mess, with Chuba Hubbard having been outsnapped by Amir Abdullah each of the past two games, the first of which Christian McCaffrey got injured and the second of which the backfield was Chuba and Abdullah's the entirety of the game. There's no saying with any degree of confidence which of these backs will lead the way moving forward, and they both have also to contend with the high red zone rushing utilization of Cameron Newton. 
The matchup on the ground yields a scary low 3.90 net adjusted line yards metric against a Buffalo defense that clamps down on power runs up the gut, but is susceptible to rushes off the edge, of which the Panthers don't utilize heavily. Cue the Ralph Wiggum, I'm in danger gif. As alluded to above, this pass game is at the mercy of an inaccurate, poor timing, and poor arm strength of Cam Newton at this point in the season, and it now has to face the number one pass defense in the league. Cue the Ralph I'm in danger gif times two. Although we're highly unlikely to need more analysis than that, here goes. DJ Moore and Robbie Anderson are the only pass catchers to play near every down roles, with Brandon Zalestra now splitting snaps with an ineffective Terrence Marshall Jr. and Ian Thomas sharing tight end duties with Tommy Tremble. DJ Moore has averaged nine targets per game across Cam's three starts, good for a rock-solid floor of 14.4 fantasy points during that span. Robbie Anderson, lols to us for missing it, saw 12 targets last week and put up a respectable 21.4 fantasy points seemingly out of nowhere, but saw just four and six targets in the other two Cam Newton starts. The remaining pass catchers have combined one game with more than just three targets across the last three games, Zalestra of all people with five targets last week. Again, against the number one pass defense in the league, it might not matter, but we'll explore some interesting dynamics below. How Buffalo Will Try to Win Buffalo has been a different team this season, and a large part of the reason why is due to their top three ranked defense. Their defense has allowed them not to have to throw the football as much this season, particularly in games they control throughout. Against a broken Panthers offense, in more ways than one, they are highly likely to be afforded the same opportunity here, meaning just enough pass volume to get the job done, and an increased emphasis on the run late in the game. Their offense ranks 7th in drive success rate, 7th in points per drive, and 2nd in average starting field position, a nod to their defense more than anything, and they should eventually find success against the Panthers here. The backfield remains tough to decipher prior to inactivities being announced, but Zach Moss has been held as a healthy inactive in two of the previous three games, and Devin Singletary has snap rates of 68% and 82% in those games, with Matt Breida operating as the primary change of pace back. Even with the balloon snap rates, Singletary is highly likely to require both a Moss inactive and an extremely positive game script in order to return a GPP-worthy score here, but that possibility is highly unlikely to be accounted for by the field. The ground matchup yields a slightly below average 4.24 net adjusted line yards metric against a defense allowing just 20.4 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields. The moneymaker for this Bills team has continued to be the pass game, even in games they are able to control with their defense. Although it is still their moneymaker, it is less likely to be our moneymaker in games they control, as the typical decrease in volume is a significant hit to the range of outcomes of all pass catchers. The likely absence of Emmanuel Sanders opens up a fairly large snap rate expectation for Gabriel Davis, who pairs a deep average depth of target with a high red zone role. A dangerous combination for a player likely to go largely overlooked by the field here. Expect Stefan Diggs and Davis to man the perimeter, with Cole Beasley and tight end Dawson Knox working primarily from the slot. We'll cover more of what to expect from this pass offense in the DFS Plus interpretation below. Likeliest Game Flow Buffalo is highly likely to control the game with their defense, creating a situation where their offense can operate any which way they choose. As we've explored in this space earlier in the season, the Bills are no longer a team that we can expect to sling the football late into large wins. Josh Allen has five games already this year with 30 or fewer pass attempts. As such, Allen is highly likely going to need the Panthers to keep pressure on in order to return GPP ceiling-worthy numbers. As in, he has as many games of 30 or fewer pass attempts as he does games over 300 pass yards this season. Now consider the fact that these two teams are number one and number two in the league in pass yards allowed per game, and we're left with a game environment that is likeliest to underwhelm relative to expected ownership. Like, a Bills game has a game total of just 44.5 points for a reason, and this exploration should serve to highlight those reasons. That said, we do have a somewhat condensed Bills pass offense that could warrant consideration in specific game environments, which we will hit on on the website. The Bengals at the Broncos kick off Sunday, December 19th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 44.0. COVID updates coming throughout the weekend on OneWeekSeason.com.
Game Overview by Hilo. Bengals corner Chidobi Awuzie and tackle Riley Reef have already been ruled out for this weekend, while tackle Isaiah Prince, linebacker Logan Wilson, and backup center Trey Hill have yet to practice this week. The Broncos are currently a little better off on the injury and COVID front, with only defensive end Dremont Jones and inside linebacker Kenny Young yet to practice this week as of Thursday. 29th and 30th offenses in situation-neutral pace of play, 28th and 31st offenses in overall pace of play, 26th and 31st offenses in pace of play when trailing by seven or more points. There are not going to be a ton of plays in this one. How Cincinnati will try to win. The Bengals have evolved into a much more balanced offense as the season has progressed, ranking in the middle of the league in both situation-neutral and overall rush pass rates. They are, however, one of the slowest offenses in the league, ranking 30th in situation-neutral pace of play, 31st in overall pace of play this season, and even 31st in pace of play when trailing by seven or more points. Even with the slow pace of play, a defense ranking 6th in drive success rate allowed has allowed this team to run near-league average total offensive plays per game, rushes per game, and pass attempts per game. For all intents and purposes, this surprisingly effective defense is a large part of the success the Bengals have enjoyed this season, as the offense is near-league average in most major metrics, including points per drive, 11th, total yards of offense per game, 16th, drive success rate, 19th, and yards per drive, 20th. The emergence of Sam J. P. Ryan has allowed the Bengals to keep Joe Mixon's snap rates within reason this season typically landing in the 65 to 75% range. Think of Mixon and his weekly expected workload as a tick below truly elite, but a tick above 2021 NFL lead back status. His weekly rush attempts depend largely on game flow, while his weekly pass game involvement has been hit or miss. At best, four to six targets in four games, with eight games of two targets or fewer. Expect a floor of 16 to 18 rush attempts with unknown pass game involvement and a ceiling for 30-plus carries in the right game environments. Pirine should see a typically backup range of outcomes of 8 to 12 running back opportunities in most game environments. The matchup on the ground yields a surprisingly robust 4.465 net adjusted line yards metric against a Denver defense allowing just 21.7 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields. Only eight total touchdowns allowed to running backs this season. As we've previously explored in this space, rookie wide receiver Jamar Chase is the only pass catcher to play a near-every-down rule for this team, with slotman Tyler Boyd typically landing in the 75-85% to 85% snap rate range, perimeter wideout T. Higgins typically landing in the 75-80% to 80% snap rate range, and tight end C.J. Uzoma typically landing in the 65-85% to 85% snap rate range. Wide receivers Stanley Morgan and Mike Thomas are on hand as depth pieces, while blocking tight end Drew Sample typically soaks up 35-50% to 50 of the offensive snaps as well. The Broncos have surprisingly faced the third deepest average depth of target against at 9.0, but have forced the league's lowest completion rate against, 58.41%, and are near league average in average yards after the catch allowed. Expect a slight boost to the deeper ADOT wide receivers here, which are primarily Chase, 13.1, and Higgins, 12.1. How Denver will try to win. While the Broncos are viewed primarily as a run-first offense, their overall rush pass rates have been heavily influenced by game flow all season. Quarterback Teddy Bridgewater has seven games of 33 pass attempts or more, and five games of 26 pass attempts or fewer indicating an offense that would prefer to run the football in games they control, but one that is also not afraid to open things up when they need to. This has led to just below average overall pass rates, a tick below the Bengals, and wildly swinging pass attempts per game. The true identity of this team is based around an aggressive defense, 10th most turnovers generated per drive, 6th fewest time of possession allowed per drive, 3rd lowest time of possession allowed per drive, and 8th fewest yards allowed per drive. That aims to control games, allowing for increased rush rates when possible, not the other way around. As in, this isn't a team that is built around the run first, rather a team that will utilize increased rush rates when their defense allows them to. Melvin Gordon returned after a one-game absence last week to the same near-even split with Javante Williams in both snap rate and usage. 
As such, expect each to require a game environment conducive to increased overall rush rates in order to return the requisite volume needed for sealing games. What I mean by that is this. A standard range of outcomes as far as running back opportunity goes is 14 to 18 for both Williams and Gordon. They typically needed the defense to provide a game environment where the offense can increase their rush rates in order to go over that range. The matchup on the ground is one of the more difficult these Broncos have seen this season, yielding a below average 4.065 net adjusted line yards metric. Considering Teddy Bridgewater targets his running backs at a below average rate, and that already low target rate is split between two bodies, we should primarily view each of Gordon and Williams as yardage and touchdown backs with a hint of added floor through the air. The Broncos' pass game has devolved into a spread offense that utilizes 11 and 12 personnel at above league average rates. Cortland Sutton and Tim Patrick operate as the primary perimeter weapons, while Jerry Judy operates primarily from the slot, and Noah Fant and Albert O typically split tight end snaps at 75-45 to 45 clip. For all the talk surrounding Teddy Bridgewater and his conservative ways, he actually holds top 12 marks in both intended air yards per pass attempt and total completed air yards this season. This makes sense when examining his pass catchers, the wide receivers of which all hold above average depths of target, Sutton 15.1, Patrick 10.8, Judy 7.7, which is slightly above average for a slot weapon. The tight end duo of Noah Fant and Albert O are the only two below average aerial weapons in ADOC. The Bengals seed an 8.0 average depth of target on defense, exactly in line with Bridgewater's mark. The absence of Chidobi Awuzi is a big deal for this offense, who has partnered with Eli Apple to throw a minuscule 45.1% completion rate in primary coverage against opposing perimeter wide receivers. More on this below. Likeliest Game Flow We're likely to see an extremely slow-paced, slug-it-out start to this one, with the clearest path for that to open up coming through the Cincinnati pass game, primarily through deep passing. Since we know the Broncos have yielded deeper passing, and since we know the Broncos are willing and able to open their offense up to include increased pass rates, this single game flow gives this one the best chance of turning into a game with greater than league average offensive plays run from scrimmage. In every other game environment, we should expect a slow-paced game with increased rush rates from each side. This brings up an interesting point in that this game has a relatively hidden path to pass game relevance, yet the field is highly unlikely to view it as such. The best way to capture that hidden upside is through a correlated pairing of pass catchers from each side, which is almost guaranteed to be low-owned this week. I would limit exposure in this case to Jamar Chase or T. Higgins from the Bengals, while quite literally any Broncos pass catcher would be the one to see a bump in production, although it is likeliest to come through either Sutton or Patrick on the perimeter. Whichever one is away from Eli Apple, as Mike Hilton is one of the better slot corners in the league this year. Per alignments, that is most likely going to be Sutton. The Falcons at the 49ers kick off Sunday, December 19th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 46.5. COVID updates coming throughout the weekend on OneWeekSeason.com. Game Overview by M. Johnson 86 Atlanta continues to stay alive by winning games against weak competition. None of their wins has come against a team with a winning record. San Francisco has won four of their last five games despite battling some injury issues along the way. The 49ers have a chance to be fully healthy at their skill positions for the first time in several weeks. All six of the Falcons' wins have come away from home, five on the road and one in London. The 49ers are likely to control the game and impose their run-heavy, slow-paced approach. How Atlanta will try to win In two of their last three games, both wins, the Falcons have had a 50% or higher run rate, which is up significantly from their 61% rate for the season. They have also adjusted roles in their backfield, with Corderell Patterson taking over the lead back role but ceding most third down and passing situation work to Mike Davis. Unfortunately for the Falcons, this new recipe for success is unlikely to work in this matchup against the very stout 49ers run defense, which is ranked third in DVOA and seventh by PFF's grades. On the other hand, the 49ers' pass defense is a middle-to-low-tier unit that is missing multiple pieces, including their best cornerback, Emmanuel Mosley. 
The problem for the Falcons is that they don't have much talent to expose this situation with their replacement level or lower receiving core. Over the last half of the season, the Falcons are playing with the 23rd fastest situation neutral pace in the league and, as mentioned before, have become more run-heavy. While the matchup won't let them pound the run at the rate they have been, it is very likely that they will continue a methodical approach and hope their overachieving defense is able to hold up and make this a game in the fourth quarter. The Falcons spent last year and the start of this year as an aggressive passing team that sped their opponents up, but that is no longer the case. We should expect a balanced attack and a continued conservative pace. Kyle Pitts has struggled with extra defensive attention and facing top cornerbacks from opposing teams. It would not be surprising to see Pitts finally have a big game here as the 49ers are shorthanded at cornerback with no one who can match Pitts physically and the likely tough sledding they will see in the running game. How San Francisco Will Try to Win The 49ers are built to run with Kyle Shanahan's elite scheme and their ability to stretch defenses horizontally and vertically. If Elijah Mitchell is cleared for this week, it will be the first time that he, Debo Samuel, George Kittle, and Brandon Ayuk have been active together in a game since Week 12 against the Vikings, a game in which they scored 34 points through three quarters before Debo left with an injury. The 49ers have PFF's number one graded run-blocking offensive line facing off against a Falcons defense that is ranked 31st in rush defense DVOA and 27th in yards per carry allowed. This Falcons team is also one of the worst tackling teams in the league, ranking 24th in PFF grades as a tackling unit. This could prove to be a huge issue for them as the 49ers are an offense built around skilled players who are elite with the ball in their hands. Elijah Mitchell ranks 4th out of 65 qualifying running backs in yards after contact per attempt. Debo Samuel ranks 1st out of 67 qualifying wide receivers in yards after contact per reception. He also averages 5.79 yards after contact on rushes. George Kittle ranks 2nd out of 18 qualifying tight ends in yards after contact per attempt. The game plan for the 49ers should be very straightforward here as they will play their normal style of ball methodical with a ground-based approach while using creative play calling and schemes to attack the very vanilla Falcons defense in a variety of ways. We often measure aggressiveness by downfield passing and pass rate, which would make us feel like the 49ers are not going to be aggressive here due to their high run rate and low ADOT. However, while the 49ers will play their brand of football, they are definitely going to do it in an aggressive way that sets them up for some big plays. Likeliest Game Flow This has all the makings of a slow-paced game with relatively low play volume and is unlikely to deliver huge splash plays out of the gate. The 49ers game last week against the Bengals is likely a good barometer of how this game could play out from a purely game flow and pace perspective, with the main difference being the Falcons have a worse defense and less explosive offensive pieces to become more aggressive with if when they fall behind. The 49ers are likely to have a great deal of offensive success in this game as their elite skill position players will be able to move the chains consistently while also being capable of breaking free for a big play at any time. While their attack will likely not be vertical in nature, Shanahan will scheme ways for his playmakers to get the ball in space to break tackles and make people miss. This makes it highly likely that San Francisco takes control of this game early on and is able to control the pace and rhythm of the game by extending drives and keeping their defense fresh, which will, in turn, make it more difficult for the Falcons to start sustaining drives. The Falcons have played five games against teams ranked in the top 10 in offensive DVOA. In those five games, they have given up an average of 35.6 points per game. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Packers at the Ravens kick off Sunday, December 19th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 43.5. COVID updates coming throughout the weekend on OneWeekSeason.com. Game Overview by M. Johnson 86. The status of Lamar Jackson will have a huge impact on the expectations for this game on both sides of the ball. The strength of both offenses matches up with the weakness of both defenses. 
Two slow-paced teams are facing off in a critical game for both of their playoff chances and seeding purposes. How Green Bay Will Try to Win The Packers' offense is scorching hot, averaging 37.3 points per game over the last three weeks. Now, a red-hot Aaron Rodgers gets to face a Baltimore defense that has struggled against good passing offenses all year and has recently given up very good games to previously struggling quarterbacks in Baker Mayfield and Ben Roethlisberger. The Ravens' run defense continues to live up to its name value in terms of stopping the run and being hard-nosed in that way. While the Packers are usually a pretty balanced offense, this matchup will push them towards the strength of their passing game at a higher rate than their league average. The emergence of A.J. Dillon and the fragility of Aaron Jones has led to a fairly even split of the backfield work for the Packers. While this matchup has some pass-funnel tendencies, the Packers are good enough and committed to their style of play to the extent that they will stay relatively balanced as long as they are able to. A big development for the Packers' offense will be the status of the Ravens' stud defensive lineman, Calais Campbell, who missed Wednesday and Thursday practices with a thigh injury. Campbell is a monster up front, and his presence, or lack thereof, will change the approaches for both teams. Another big injury development will be the status of Packers star offensive tackle David Bakhtiari, who returned to practice in a limited capacity this week. His presence would certainly bolster the outlook for the Packers offense as a whole and give them more freedom to attack however they prefer. The Packers offense is established and mature. It has developed over the years, and there is a lot of familiarity within their structure and attack. While the means by which they have success moving the ball may be dictated somewhat by their matchup, they are not a team who will completely shift one way or the other just based on their opponent. To that end, we should expect a usual Green Bay game plan that focuses on getting the ball to Devontae Adams in a variety of ways, while also highlighting both of their very capable running backs with the matchup potentially favoring Jones and his ability to make plays in space. The Packers are also likely to play their usual methodical pace in this very important spot, as Rodgers uses as much of the play clock as possible to gather information and make adjustments before the snap. How Baltimore Will Try to Win The Ravens are only a game behind the top seed in the AFC, while also only having a one-game lead over the current 10th seed. They are squarely in the middle of a wild playoff race and have a huge question mark surrounding their quarterback and best player, Lamar Jackson. It sounds as if Jackson's status will come down to game time, so we will have to pay attention all the way to the end. Tyler Huntley has performed admirably in relief this season, first against the Bears in a start where he picked up a win with some late heroics, and then last week coming in after Jackson was injured and already being down 17-0 to the Browns. Once again, Huntley brought the Ravens back only to fall just short with a 24-22 loss. The Baltimore offense doesn't function too differently from a schematic standpoint with Huntley instead of Jackson, as Huntley uses his legs well and has a good grasp of most of the same offensive concepts as the Ravens use to leverage Jackson's elite athleticism. However, we would likely see a much more conservative approach from the Ravens if Jackson is unable to go. Jackson is third in the league in average intended air yards at 10 yards per attempt, while Huntley only averages 7.5 air yards on his pass attempts. Although the Ravens run the ball at a very high rate relative to league average, they continue to throw the ball at a much higher rate than they have in past seasons as they enjoy the fruits of a healthy and talented receiving core, highlighted by Mark Andrews, Marquise Brown, and Rashad Bateman. This matchup against the Packers' pass defense is difficult as they rank second in PFF's pass-rushing grades and ninth in coverage grades in the secondary. The strength of the Ravens has been their running game over the past several years, and the Packers are far more vulnerable in that area, especially if the Ravens are forced to play without Jackson. Likeliest Game Flow The Packers are the team likeliest to control this game, especially if Lamar Jackson misses. The status of Jackson will have a huge impact on this game as both teams are likely to be deliberate and balanced in their attacks regardless of personnel, which means the ability of this game to turn into a high-scoring affair will rely on big plays and efficiency from the offenses. The Packers are likely to have enough success running the ball that they don't need to abandon it, but the majority of their success in chunk plays will likely flow through the passing game and the Rodgers-Adams connection. The Ravens' offense is good enough to have success with Huntley or Jackson under center, 
but Jackson brings a unique dynamic element and increases the aggressiveness of their play calling to the point that his presence would make it far more likely they would be able to match the Packers if Green Bay is able to score at a high rate. The Seahawks at the Rams kick off Sunday, December 19th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 45.5. COVID updates coming throughout the weekend on OneWeekSeason.com. Game Overview by M. Johnson 86 Seattle is trying to claw their way back into the playoff race, while the Rams are knocking on the door of the division and conference leads. Both teams are dealing with some COVID issues that will affect the pecking order and touch distribution of their offenses. The Rams are a fast-paced, high-play-volume team that is facing a Seattle team that bleeds play volume to opponents. The Seahawks have become far more aggressive through the air in recent weeks as Russell Wilson rounds into form. How Seattle Will Try to Win The Seahawks have always been a run-first team under Pete Carroll, despite pleas from fans, media, and Russell Wilson to let the offense spread its wings in recent years. Over the past few weeks, since Wilson's return from a finger injury in Week 10, the Seahawks have really started to tilt in that direction, with a 63% situation-neutral pass rate, which is the 8th highest rate in the league over that span. During that stretch, the only game the Seahawks have ever been more run-oriented was a convincing win over the Texans last week in which Rashad Penny was able to run the ball all over them. Even in that win, the Seahawks were very aggressive when they did pass, with Tyler Lockett amassing a whopping 234 air yards and DK Metcalf being targeted downfield and drawing multiple penalties. This is a game that will have some conflicting forces. The Seahawks' offense will likely need to score a lot of points to have a chance to win, and their best chance of scoring points is through the air. The Rams have an elite run defense, headlined by Aaron Donald, and are ranked second in rush defense DVOA while grading out as the number one unit against the run by PFF. The Rams' pass defense is no pushover, but given the strength of their defensive front and the lack of success the Seahawks have had on the ground all year behind PFF's 20th graded run-blocking offensive line, it should be a clear path of least resistance. The issue with expecting that approach is frankly Pete Carroll's old-school approach and likely recency bias. The Seahawks finally had success in the running game and will now likely be without Tyler Lockett due to COVID protocols, which makes it more likely Seattle will try to establish the run as their means of winning and keeping the Rams' offense off the field. How Los Angeles Will Try to Win The Rams are coming off a huge road win over the Cardinals on Monday night. They are now one game behind the Cardinals for the division lead, along with the Bucks and Packers for the conference lead. The Rams hold the tiebreaker over the Bucks, but lose the tiebreaker to the Packers based on head-to-head matchups, and there is a lot of season left, so continuing to win games will keep them in the hunt for the number one seed in the playoffs. The Rams would obviously see some benefit from home field advantage, but the most important thing about being able to get those home games may be that it would keep them from having to travel to some hostile environments on their path to the Super Bowl. The Rams continue to be who they are on a weekly basis, and who they are is the fastest-paced team in the league on a situation-neutral basis and one of the most aggressive passing teams in the league, throwing at the second-highest situation-neutral rate since Week 10. The Rams are also very aggressive downfield and relatively efficient, with Matthew Stafford ranking 5th in the league in completion percentage on throws 20-plus yards downfield. This matchup with the Seahawks presents a 28th-ranked pass defense that is also giving up the highest amount of passing yards per attempt in the league. Seattle struggles in all areas of pass defense, grading out with PFF's 30th-graded pass rush and 28th-graded coverage unit. Despite losing Robert Woods for the season and Odell Beckham being placed on the COVID list, this matchup is a clear and obvious spot for the Rams to keep doing their thing and picking apart an inferior opponent. Stafford threw for 365 passing yards in the first matchup between these teams as he averaged nearly 10 yards per attempt on a short week on the road. The Seahawks are now also without one of their defensive leaders in the secondary as Jamal Adams was lost for the year, and they gave up over 300 passing yards to Davis Mills last week. Wheels up. Likeliest Game Flow If I were approaching this game as the Seahawks coach, my approach would be to be aggressive early on to try to build a lead and then control the pace and rhythm of the game from a position of control. I am not, however, the head coach of the Seahawks. Pete Carroll is, and he will almost certainly be unable to help himself from leaning on their running game. 
Carroll is an eternal optimist and will likely see last week's success on the ground as a sign that they are back to who they want to be rather than acknowledging the fact that their success stemmed almost entirely from facing one of the worst teams in the league who also acts as a run-funnel defense. Because of that likely approach from Seattle, the Rams are far and away the team most likely to control this game, as the Seahawks will bang their head against the wall early and the Rams will dice them up through the passing game and build an early lead. As that dynamic plays out, Seattle will have no choice but to try to keep up and revert back to the pass-heavy team that we saw in weeks 10 to a 13. The ability of Los Angeles to score points early and the fact that they are a team that keeps their foot on the gas means that they are a team we should expect to drive the pace. This game could really heat up as it gets into the second half, especially if the Seahawks are able to find any offensive success and stay within striking distance.